that I want to do, and then we'll move on to verse 18. Okay, Hebrews 11:17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offered, offering up his only begotten son. Now, we talked about that and about typology last week. But there's another item that I wanted to bring up. I did talk about this when I preached on this passage some months ago when we were in Genesis 22. I can't remember what the date was, but I, you maybe were here, maybe you were not. But there is this Jewish use of this that's probably what the author of Hebrews is referencing because he's writing to Jewish people who would have been familiar with it. The story of Abraham and Isaac is called the Aquada. Aquada. And aquada is a word from the Hebrew that was used in Genesis 22 that means binding. And this story had a rich history of commentary in intertestamental Jewish literature and in Jewish tradition. And the commentary is somewhat interesting in as much as it gives you a background of why the author of Hebrews would refer to this incident and what his Jewish readers would have been thinking about. So it's called the Aqueduct. Let me read a little bit about that. This is from uh, William Lane, who has an excellent uh, commentary on this. Uh, Abraham's action was constantly celebrated in the exemplary tradition of Judaism as a model of faithfulness and obedience to God. Although the source of the example is Genesis 22, 1-18, details in the presentation appear to justify the assumption that the writer has been influenced by rich Jewish aqueda tradition. And so, we will look at some of that as we go along here. So, they used to bring this up in their discussions and talk about Abraham and his faith and how it was an exemplary thing that should be emulated. Okay, now Hebrews 11:18. It was he to whom it was said, "In Isaac your descendants shall be called." Now, Abraham obviously was facing a very, very difficult test of his faith. If you remember the story in Genesis, how many battles Abraham went through to come to the point where he had Isaac. And and I said earlier that he was as good as dead, and it was hopeless. And every attempt that they had made to do something like the Ishmael episode turned out to not be right and not what God wanted. And so now, finally, he has Isaac as a miraculous provision from God. And all these promises that have been reiterated from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 to Genesis 17, over and over again, that in your descendants shall all these families of the earth be blessed, and you shall have... Descendants as the stars of the sky, and having had all of those promises, now God says, "Go offer up Isaac, give it all away." And so, the Aquita story binding is based on that. Uh, Brian, if you could look up Genesis sixteen nineteen and Denise Genesis twenty one twelve. Genesis 17, 19. You have to talk loud here. we got a fan going. And, a... and God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son indeed, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant 
or solemn pledge with him for an everlasting covenant and with his posterity after him. So that was Genesis seventeen nineteen, where the promise was given, given that his name was going to be Isaac, and it would be with him that this posterity would come and the promises would live on. So that, that's why Isaac was so important to Abraham. Genesis twenty one twelve. Okay, so it's reiterated, in Isaac shall your seed be called. So the seed promises were dependent on the well-being of Isaac, and that Isaac would have children. Now let's move along here to uh, Hebrews 11.19, where we have a very intriguing passage. It says here, He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which He also received him back as a type. Now, we talked about typology last week, for those of you who were here, and how a type is an event or a person in the Old Covenant that is intended, even from way back then, because God inspired the Bible and God providentially oversaw the events of history, that God intended that these real events and real people would prefigure something in the New Covenant. And usually it prefigures Christ or some aspect of Christ's atonement. So here we have Isaac and Jacob being a type. I mean, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham and Isaac being a type. And there are a lot of details to this type of Isaac being a type of Christ. And I mentioned it last week. They went up to Moriah. And that is, according to Jewish tradition, the place of the Temple Mount, uh, where the sacrifices were offered. And um, Isaac went up with wood on his back. And even according to Jewish Haggadah, uh, the wood would be like a man bearing a cross. So Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice, it prefigures Christ carrying his own cross, which is going to be our sermon this morning. I'm going to preach on uh, the episode of Christ being mocked and uh, tortured as he was crucified. And so we have here a prefiguring of what God is going to do in Christ. Now, it says here that he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Yes, Keith. It's interesting, too, that Isaac was Abraham's literal seed at that time, his only one, the seed of the promise. Christ is also called the seed of Abraham, so that Abraham's seed that was offered up as a type of Isaac, the same seed ultimately seed of seed of Christ as well. Yeah, that was absolutely essential that the seed would leads to Christ, and not only that, the terminology in Hebrews uses this term "only begotten" that's used in John for for Christ being only begotten, monogene. Uh, only one of his time, a unique one. And it's normally not a term that would be used of Abraham's son, but it's, it's, I think it's used in Hebrews so that we'd realize that this is a type of Christ. He's only begotten. Now, yeah, here it is. By faith, he was raised, be able to raise him from the dead. So this is, didn't earlier it said, say something about Abraham being as good as dead? Where I'm thinking of a verse and I can't find it. What's wrong with me? 
I know it was because of too busy this weekend and not, not enough sleep. We didn't get back from that uh, journey down to Labrie in Rochester. We got back, Jessica and I, at 1 a.m. And then I had to get up and come down here and do an outreach all day yesterday. So if I say anything incoherent, that's my excuse. It's like when you're going golfing, when you're on the tee, you tell all the reasons why you're probably not going to be good. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tyler. That's it, Romans 4. I know we talked about it here, but it was probably a cross-reference that we'd gone into. Okay, this is Romans 4.19. Thank you, Tyler. So here is what is good as dead. And, and, and so Abraham, having been as good as dead, procreatively, in his ability to, him, his and his wife's ability to have children, he, they'd already received Isaac, in a sense, when they were as good as dead. So he's believing now that if he has to bring him up and sacrifice, God can, in a sense, uh, raise the dead again. However, he's going to do it. So this is a supreme act of faith and confidence in God. So, uh, back to William Lane. Abraham was so certain that God would perform what he had promised that by faith he attempted to offer Isaac in the conviction that God would, could revive the dead. The word logis, logisamenas denotes inward conviction, persuasion, and not simply a considered opinion. So he was inwardly persuaded in his heart and mind that God would come through. Even though God had not given him any specific assurance of anything about resurrection from the dead or whatever, God had just said, go sacrifice it. That's all he knew. But there was a hint of his faith because when Genesis 22, when they were leaving their servants behind, it was just going to be Abraham proceeding up to Moriah. He says, the lad and I will go worship and return to you. So there is already a hint that Abraham believed God was going to do something. He just didn't know what it was. If necessary, even raise the dead. Um, what else did I want to say about that? Um, oh, it talks about the, the, the consideration as far as that word in the Greek. The temporal force of the aorist tense is that Abraham's conclusion was made once and finally. So Abraham came to the conclusion once and for all, that's what's going to happen. And he, and he went forward in faith. Now, it says here, and, and from which he also received him as a type. Now, that is not the typical word for type. There's a word for type in the Greek, tupos. But that's not the word here. The word in the Greek is parabole, uh, where we would get our word parable. It says I received him back uh, as a parabole. And I have some commentary again by this excellent scholar William Lane on this. The, the restoring of Isaac by the unanticipated reprieve at the last moment was a specific instance of God's power to raise the dead. The sacrifice is seen as a gift that God returns, guaranteeing the reception of what was promised according to Genesis 21.12. The expression in parabole, and he, he translates it, in a foreshadowing, um, he points out that that was used earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews 9. Uh, what does it say here? In that context, parabole connotes a past institution that foreshadows in some way a reality that is yet to come. This would appear to be uh, appropriate for the meaning 
here, when Abraham received Isaac from the altar of sacrifice, there was a foreshadowing of the future resurrection from the dead. Now, here's something I found. I hope you find this interesting. You know what's going to happen? With, I may have to stand because I feel like people are... Are you hearing me? The problem with me shouting is I won't have enough voice left for my sermon. So, I, I, I hate to be so formal, but I think I'll stand. Let the old green chair sit here. Because I won't feel like I have to shout quite so loud and I'll say something for the sermon. Um... He said something interesting. Uh, these scholars, I had a scholar at Bethel Seminary who was very brilliant this way and had read all these intertestamental Jewish literature. So he knew about Jewish Haggadah and Jewish Midrash and all the different things they did with the scriptures and could just bring the light on what was going on. Here's something I found exceedingly interesting uh, that it comes from that sort of material. Here's what he says. The recitation... The recitation of the first three of the 18 benedictions, this is part of their synagogue service, was an integral part of the synagogue liturgy by the first century. In Jewish tradition, the second of these prayers, which pronounces a blessing upon God, quote, who makes the dead alive, unquote, was linked with the aqueduct. The aqueduct was the binding of Isaac. When Isaac was restored to Abraham, he exclaimed together with his father, Blessed be God who raises the dead. Now, that, the, the, Genesis doesn't say that, but the Jewish tradition did. The Jewish tradition was, they said, blessed be God who raises the dead. So when the author of Hebrews said that he considered him able to raise the dead, the whole Jewish readership in, of Hebrews would have been familiar with the fact that every time they went to synagogue, they cited this, they went back to the aqueduct binding, and they say, blessed be God who raises the dead. And so this was coming alive to them as they heard this in the New Testament as Christians. Yes. So all of the Jewish believers that he is writing to have grown up hearing that exactly. And he's claiming now here that God actually did raise his son from the dead. It's not unusual that the son of promise, Jesus the Messiah, would be raised. Therefore, you should believe in him. Amen. Can you imagine how powerful that would be if you were a first century Jew and all your life you'd gone to synagogue and you'd gone through the liturgy and all for Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, all through your life, you, you recited the story, you went back to Isaac and you said, blessed be God who raises the dead. And now the Christian preacher comes in and says, God did the same thing. He sent His only begotten. And it's a greater one because it's the one who was the greater seed of Abraham that had been promised. And this one was raised from the dead, literally. In Abraham's case, Pete, could you, if you don't mind, turn that fan off, because my voice is going to be gone, and then I won't be able to preach a sermon. When I was young, I could shout all day long. Now i got about an hour of shouting. Yes, Lazarus' resurrection from the dead in a sense, showed the power of Jesus Christ. It was a different thing because Lazarus was raised in a mortal body and he died again. But Jesus was raised in an immortal, imperishable body. And he lives. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you. That um, One of these times will get so cool out we won't need fans, but uh, I guess this year is going to be delayed until at least October. So the, I thought that was a very interesting insight from the Jewish literature that 
these these things in here weren't just coming in a vacuum. They were they were truths that were prefigured even in liturgy. And what a powerful impact it would have on the first century Jews to realize now God actually did this. And that's why it was such a severe warning to them here, because they're tempted to go back to the type when they already had the reality. And, and it says in Colossians, these things are just a, a shadow. Yes. They claim that it didn't happen. It didn't happen. But every Saturday they said, every you know, Saturday they said that it did happen. And they're saying, no, it didn't happen. Yeah, it's apostasy. Yeah. So he received him back in a type. Now, um, Linda, could you look up Genesis 22, 4, 5, and 13? I got three verses there. 4, 5, and 13 from Genesis 22. Yeah. And that's the story about what happened here, but it's some of the key passages. And then, uh, Karen, if you could look up Romans 4, 17 to 21. Uh, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And Lab and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Thirteen, yeah. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Amen. And remember what he named the place. God will provide. Jehovah Yireh literally in Hebrew means God will see. And the reason God will see was interpreted as God will provide. It's because of God's compassion and nature that when he sees the need of his own people, it motivates him to provide for them. So when God sees, God provides. Amen. Did you want to ask a question? Or no? Okay. <laughs> I see that hand. Do you think there's any uh, connection? It was the third day that Abraham. I thought I heard that too. It was the third day, and I don't know if there's a connection with the fact that Christ was raised on the third day. It was a type of yeah. the resurrection. The number of details that mirror the resurrection of Christ is amazing. Right. Yeah, the wood on the back, the the only begotten, the third day, the location, the location exactly. It's amazing. Uh, frankly, the more I, the older I get and the longer, many years I've spent studying the Bible, the more it amazes me that anybody has unbelief. I mean, if you just knew the, the, although, I gotta say, I, I, after the outreach, oh, I might as well give a little pre-announcement of this thing. We ended up with way more hot dogs. Uh, they, alright, we got hot dogs, hot dogs, hot dogs, and, our freezer's full, and the rest are in the refrigerator. And so I decided to go to Sam's Club and get a whole bunch of Ziplocs, and I'm going to send you all home with hot dogs, whoever wants them. Because <laughs> they're in cases of 50, you know, who could eat 50 foot long? They're foot longs, too. So they're, so I was going to, I was going to, K, uh, to Sam's to get a bunch of Ziplocs to, to give away these hot dogs, and I turned on the radio, and John MacArthur was on. And, he was doing some sort of interaction with people asking questions, and there was a lady asking about talking to Mormons and how the Mormons were saying, well, you can't use that verse in Revelation not to add to the Bible because there's another one in Deuteronomy 4 saying you can't add to it, and they obviously added after that. 
And so then he gave an answer to that, a very good one. And then he said, but let me speak further on this matter. He says, though it's, we want to give good answers and we should give the best ones we can, here's something you need to know, Martha said, that the unregenerate cannot understand the things of God. And that the reason they don't get it isn't because our arguments aren't good enough, it's because they're spiritually blind. That they're dead in trespasses and sins. So you shouldn't feel like if I could just get a better argument, then they'd for sure have to uh, understand it. And so what MacArthur was seeing is that, and what, I, what I'm looking at is the more I say the Bible, you have to believe it's inspired by God. No people could, who would figure this out? I mean, how could you have a, a situation where you write a story back here and you have this whole thing happen to Abraham and then have Christ actually come and be raised from the dead. I mean, you can't make that up and you can't make it happen. So why, why don't you believe? MacArthur says, because they're spiritually blind. But, and this is what I loved about what he had to say, maybe some of you had KKMS on and heard the same thing. He says, but we need to be faithful in our proclamation because God uses that through the Holy Spirit to awaken people from the dead, spiritually dead. And I thought about we the, the outreach that I just came from, and I saw all of you, and not every one of you, but many of you out there doing that very thing. Be encouraged. I thought MacArthur is absolutely right on. We're faithful in the proclamation. The, the gospel went out. If everybody doesn't suddenly come running and say, okay, okay, I, we see the light, um, then don't feel bad. Now. You could be Jeremiah. He preached his whole lifetime, and nobody ever saw the light. Yes. Brad. Sword, you know, like it says in Hebrew, I know people at words and talks to them, and uh, you know, later they come back and they're convicted. You can see them, you know, they feel a sense of sinfulness. Yeah. The word here comes with its own power. Yeah, and that just that thing MacArthur's talking about, I think, is at the root of what's going wrong with the entire evangelical movement. I, I don't know if you got the article I wrote on the church growth movement that just went out, but I was talking about that. If you believe that it, it's up to our power of persuasion and attraction and whatever to get people to be Christian, well, then it makes sense to make the church look attractive to the world. I mean, if we don't look attractive, why are they going to come to our church? So we've got to make it attractive. But what I'm saying and what MacArthur is saying is that by nature, the, the, a genuine, true expression of the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and a true gathering, ecclesia, called out one, by its very nature, if it's true to itself, is attractive. And we can prove that over and over. You just read the Gospels, okay? The more Jesus, the clearer Jesus got about what he, his teaching was and what he was there for, the more they hated him until they finally crucified him. It was very unattractive. He ended up just with a little handful of followers, right? And even when there is a revival, like on the day of Pentecost, it's still a small remnant. 3,000 out of all of Judaism that were gathered for the Pentecost, for the, for the Passover, is a small, tiny little remnant amongst all the hundreds, I don't know how many million Jews there were. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but they were, the faithful ones were the ones that went to Passover in Jerusalem. There were many, many more that weren't there, obviously. But this is just a remnant. It's a great start. It was a work, a miracle work of God to start a church with 3,000. But the, the power is in the Word of God. And so, 
I'm trying to get pastors who would be willing to listen to just decide to be faithful, to feed the flock, proclaim a word, and let God do His work. Yes, sir. Uh, on that thought, what are your feelings about people who are out proclaiming the gospel, basically talking the one that they're talking to into praying the prayer for salvation before that person's had a chance to examine it? Well, if, yeah, if you, if you uh, know what we teach here about the gospel, we, we teach the pr- proclaim accurately who Jesus is, what He did, why people need it. And when the Holy Spirit convicts somebody concerning sinfulness and judgment, then we see signs of conversion. And it's fine to pray a prayer. It's, it's, uh, in fact, it's, what's, what's best is just to pray for the person. That God would open, and I see, you know, Dan and uh, Carolyn, they they pray for a lot of people. Dan will just put his arm around somebody, tell them the, tell them the truth of the gospel, and pray for them. So let me pray for you. You can pray that God would open somebody's eyes, but to try to get somebody to pray after me and then account that as a conversion, we don't. That's not what we recommend. <laughs> okay, Keith, and then Larry. No. Prayer a guy could offer just the words without the faith behind it. It's not a magic incantation that if you pray these six words and you go to heaven, something like that. It's fine to pray, but the prayer is something that's expressing the belief and the faith in the message that God has given us. Diane will remember this, but when I got saved, she she had been to, remember you went to that thing for a week where they were teaching how to lead people to the Lord? And uh, she wasn't very good at it, no. <laughs> She had no idea what to do. And she goes, I don't know anything. And she's opening the Bible. I was falling over into these pages, which is so God just supernaturally convicted me. And she says, well, you need to pray this prayer. I said, well, I'll pray my own prayer. True to my nature, right? <laughs> she, she had learned in this prayer. She was supposed to teach people to pray to get saved. Well, when I was, I was a blasphemer one moment, the next moment I was willing to pray a prayer without following anybody. But why? Because God had converted me. If God converts people, they'll pray prayers without somebody telling them what it has to be. I guess I just want to bring out the struggle a little bit further. Um, just an example of what happened yesterday out there. I was speaking with a Muslim man about the gospel. And I handed him a little book with the gospel done to talk to him to it, pray to it about getting into a relationship with God. And he was very open to what I had to give him. And shortly after, I finished speaking to him, and I, please, I, I'm not saying it's out of a critical spirit. I just want to bring it out for time. Shortly after, I finished speaking with him, another couple came up to him, told him in a few short sentences the gospel, and then led him in a prayer for salvation, and then assured him that he was saved. And this man had never heard the gospel where I spoke to him. It was all in his And... I felt that was like pushing a seed to the place of death rather than life. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I believe about it. And if that was somebody here, we're here to learn. But here's what I think. It's not helpful to offer somebody assurance when there's no sign of, of regeneration. I don't think it's helpful. Because they may go off lost and, and do no more about it. And think that because they prayed to prayer, that's all God ever expected of them. Um, it could be, a, yeah, it's like an inoculation. Larry. 
Uh, that passage that you read, uh, Genesis, you know, the end of that passage, verse 5, where it says, uh, Then Abraham and the young said, Stay here with his donkey. I and the boy will go over there, there and worship. And the part that, that uh, stands out in that verse for me is, Comes again to you. Which, at that point, I think, is what you were saying earlier, that he was thoroughly convinced and fully persuaded that whatever was going to happen was going to happen because... How could he have said that? And then, how we will come back? Right. And the, that, right. And the Jewish um, midrash on that was that they said Abraham believed God could raise the dead. And they actually incorporated that into their synagogue benedictions. Blessed be God who, who raises the dead, based on this uh, aqueduct. And so, what the author of Hebrews is doing is taking from the Jewish way of interpreting that passage. And saying, God, Abraham believed God could raise the dead. And his Jewish Hebrew audience would, would say, yeah, we, we heard that in synagogue. <laughs> so the fact, the fact he said we'll return was evidence he believed God could raise the dead because he was all fully intended to slay him. Yes. I think it's back to the gospel message of yesterday because if you don't believe that the dead can be raised and that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, is proof that this message of the gospel was true and that through him God gives us eternal life, you will be damned. So that it, it, it all, even you know, that, that phrase yeah. is the gospel presented to the people that are listening. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, by the way, uh, about the sinner's prayer thing. Sometime we should have a little, just maybe a one hour training session here about going out. And then, Maybe we could watch Hell's Best Kept Secret again. <laughs> I, I, I love to watch that. <laughs> uh, but and then go over some of these issues. And I am more liberated, but now that I understand the gospel better, than when I thought that other way, then I, I was so under. I got to get this person to do something. I got to got to get them to make a decision. I got to get them to pray this prayer and try to do it. How whatever you can. And then when they do, see there we got we got them. Well, now I've, I have my confidence isn't in my ability to get somebody to do something. It's in the power of God to convert sinners. And I have no reason to tell them anything but what really is the truth and what really are the terms. And, and, I'm also convinced that when God does convert them, they will pray prayers. They will come to church. I don't have to go drag them out of their home and get them, making sure they get down here and, and try to get them into the Christian culture. I've got to just and tell them, here's what God, here's what God says and here's what you should be doing. It's like with Diane, I'll lead you in a prayer. No, I'll pray. And so I prayed. Why, why was I willing to pray? Because God had converted me. Uh, Brad and then Kathy. Well, I want to read a verse, John uh, 6, 44. It says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. I will raise him up to the land. Right. No man can come unless the Father draw him. And then also very similar in John, it says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you're, you're here, and if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know what I'm talking about. If you just think about your own conversion, there was some point where all this was foolishness to you. And why is it a great joy now? Because the Holy Spirit did a work. Not because we got smarter, we ended up with a better philosophy, or we became more moral people because we decided we should. No, it's because God did something to totally transform us so that we love what we used to hate. And so if we want that great work of the Holy Spirit to go forth, then we just provide the means. 
That's exactly what MacArthur was saying on the radio last night. And I'm telling you, I'm proud of him. <laughs> MacArthur is a, a, a light in a dark place when it comes to preachers in America. Kathy. I can understand your frustration. I was in an alpha class at my old church, and I grew up was saying, I'm just not sure if I'm saved. And then the leader was, like, spewing out all these verses of assurance. And I was just, like, sickened. Because afterwards, I said, she just said with her own mouth that she's not sure of her salvation. And you gave her all these verses on assurance. She goes, well, I know, but she said she prayed the prayer when she was five. And I said, I don't care what she said. I'm listening to what she said today, and she said she's not sure. And, you know, and then, you know, I went to evangelism boot camp with great comfort, you know, that whole husband kept secret. And we, we did the, you know, witnessing one-on-one on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard and Venice Beach. And they did not push us to try to get a decision from someone because he said that, you know, if the word is true, it will draw that out of them. They'll be convicted. And they'll want to pray. And he never encouraged us to pray that prayer with someone. But this one girl, he got it on video. I mean, she was like, can I pray? She was begging to pray. And this bird, I mean, this prayer was gorgeous. I mean, just repentance. And she was crying and convicted of her sin. And, and then the uh, girl that was, you know, with us and her, you know, followed up, prayed for her when she finished. But she right. Right. Exactly, which is exactly what happened to me. Uh, that this is a necessary, you know, not to shame well-meaning people that are out on the streets. And, and some of the people we work with at Hands Across the City don't understand these things very well. They're just doing what they learned from Billy Graham and, and American evangelicalism. And I believe they love the Lord. And I, as many as willing to listen, I sit with, sit down with them and try to explain the way of the Lord more perfectly. Remember what they did with Apollos? Because he he was a well-intentioned fellow, but he didn't understand the gospel issues. Um, Luann. Um, I was just curious when you talk about it, but and I hate to be a blame you know, thing, but does it stem from like Arminianism, and is that a predominant thing? Yeah, I'll, let me tell you, as long as we're talking about this, I'll tell you where it comes from. And I've heard, we asked MacArthur, no, Todd Friel asked John MacArthur this one time, and then Jan and I talked to him. MacArthur said the same thing that I always say. It comes from Charles Finney. Yes. It comes from Finney. He changed evangelicalism, and yeah, it is Arminian. In fact, Finney's worse than that. He's Pelagian. Because there's, there's some um, noble-minded Arminians in the world, uh, like I think Wesley was one. If you read Wesley's stuff, he's got the gospel right. God will use it. Yeah, if you may not understand the bondage of the will or Luther or some of this, but Wesley was very clear on the gospel and even on the means of grace. In fact, when I wrote my article on means of grace, I cited Wesley just to show you don't have to be, you know, Presbyterian or whatever. But yeah, okay. So what did Finney? Finney, uh, did you? Did I? Where did I quote him? Oh, it's in the book. So you haven't seen it. You know, you know, the book is finished. But he, I, I cited Finney, and when you wouldn't believe what he said. He said, there is nothing in religion that's outside the powers of nature. And revival is not a miracle by any definition of a miracle. Revival is nothing but the consequence of the right use of means. Finney taught that you can get people converted by awakening their dormant moral powers. And and I, I think that Finney is just been considered really good, but I went and I got Finney's systematic theology and I read it. And I don't think people realize 
that nobody in the history of American evangelicalism believed in the power of man more than Finney. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's how Keith found us. Didn't you? He found me. Keith was reading some theology and that said Finney was bad, so he goes, "Oh!" So he went on Google Finney, and I came up. <laughs> All right. Now, I believe Finney was a sincerely wanted revival in America. And I don't even doubt some people were converted under Finney because people can be converted going to a Catholic church and listening to a hymn that has the gospel in it. Uh, but let me trace this forward. Good question, Luann. So Finney says revival is not a miracle. There's nothing in religion outside of the normal powers of man. He, be- he looked at the masses of humanity and saw in every person the ability to be a Christian if he could just awaken their dormant powers within the person. This is all spelled out in his systematic theology. So he created what was then called New Measures Evangelism. What were the New Measures? The New Measures is where we got the altar call, the, um, the, the sinner's prayer, all this stuff, these New Measures. Yeah, the signing a card, all these things came from Finney. Now, Finney was very successful, and he's held in very high esteem. And when I wrote that article, I got some really nasty letters. People say, take me off your mailing list. What kind of a guy you are? You think Finney's not a, a really good whatever. And I said, I'm just telling you what his theology says. Go read it yourself. I was trained in Assemblies of God, uh, 1972-74 at North Central Bible College. And if those professors at that seminary actually read, and they were at that Bible college, wonderful people, I love them, I love them, they were great, I hold them in the highest regard. But if they actually had gone back and read Finney first person, and not just counts of what Finney was like, and read his theology, they wouldn't have agreed with it. I heard their theology, and they weren't saying that. So we need to go back to the source. Okay, so Finney says, you can have a revival on purpose. You see where I went with that? <laughs> what I have in the conclusion of my book is I cite Finney, and then I cite Peter Drucker off of Rick Warren's website. And Peter Drucker says this about Rick Warren off of Warren's website. Rick Warren is the inventor of perpetual revival. So I cite Finney, I cite Drucker, and I say that the reason... Um, the whole evangelical movement has been influenced by Rick Warren. He claims to have trained 30,000 pastors. No, 300,000. 300,000 pastors. There's only like 350,000 churches in America. Now, he's including people overseas. So, most of the church has been influenced by him. And when you see that his ideas so mirror Finney's, and that you can invent a revival by using Peter Drucker's management style... Well, I originally was going to do that with my book. I decided not to. I was going to trace a line from Finney all the way to Warren and show how this has perpetually been coming in and that Warren is like another Finney and he has the ability. Finney was brilliant. Finney was talented. When I read his biography, they said that everything that he did, he was better than everybody else. If he tried sports, he was better than everybody else. If he tried music, he was better than everybody else. If he wanted to write literature, he was better than everybody else. He went to law school. He was tall. He was handsome. He was talented. He was everything people admired. Prototypical, red-blooded, powerful, successful American.
And when he was converted, rather than feeling like God had shown mercy to a horrible, wretched sinner who didn't deserve it, his understanding was that he finally came to his senses because he's thinking more clearly. He saw conversion more as something that was within human powers. And now he was going to harness his huge talent and put it to work to save America. And actually, he, he said that if we work hard enough, we can have the millennium in three years. In America. The millennium in three years. There wasn't anything he didn't think he could do. Now, Rick Warren is not tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> so, in some ways, the analogy fails, but he has the genius of a Finney. Yes. And I that to how sort of commercial time I slashed first was because Bob said he's, the, the book is actually done, and uh, what we're trying to do now is we requested that John MacArthur write the forward. So I talked to Phil Johnson twice. Phil Johnson's like the second in charge. He oversees Grace to You, he's the executive director, and he said that. John MacArthur right now is taking a three-month sabbatical. Part of the work that he wants to get out of is writing forwards for books. It takes a lot of time. <laughs> but uh, that said, he says, if it's, you know, send it to me, it's in the introduction, chapter three, and the conclusion, send it to me. And if it's good, then it might be a very big time saver because he can just write it forward to this one as opposed to being forced to write a book himself. Phil so just printed out last week He's supposed to be reading it this weekend. He has the the he has the, the door to John MacArthur, and if that happens, the book will get a much wider uh, audience and be much easier to distribute on a large scale. So, but I would really like to pray for a group that uh, God's will is done, and that this will get in front of the right people, and that uh, distributed widely. Yeah, the book, thank you. Uh, please pray for that. Everything we're talking about in Sunday school class, the book basically shows this. Can I pray right now? Yeah, please, Keith. Father, we just lift up this book, and we don't have any contacts, we don't have any big publishing houses, and we don't have any ways to get this itself. I uh, believe that the message is good, and the message is pertinent, and that you raised up this message to combat the abuses that are happening under the purpose-driven movement. I pray that you let us find favor in the eyes of Bill Johnson as he reads this, that he would have the time and he would direct him to Father that John MacArthur would also get involved and put his pen to this. And yet we know that you are in charge of all this and that even in the distribution of this message you oversee that and are not dependent on them and that we ask that we're pushing this way that your will would be done. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Keith. Uh, thanks for the prayer. Jack. Can you address or talk a little bit about your thoughts on, on uh, and I realize it's not in our purview to determine whether somebody is saved or not, but when you talk about Penny and Warren and some of these, can you talk about where you think they are in terms of salvation? Yeah, okay. Rick, Penny I have some severe doubts about because of his testimony so much about himself. But, but Rick Warren, as I've done the research, and it took two years, and some help, and she got all this insider information, linked it, and sent it to me. But here's the shocker. When you get inside, he's way more conservative. 
He's not a liberal. He's very conservative. He believes the gospel. He believes in heaven and hell. He's got strict rules for, for people that would be members of his church. And the, thing, the, the things that he has as far as answering questions to people in their small groups would not divert very far at all from what we would tell them. Now, but when I found that out, it totally proved that my research was right. Because in the book, I'm seeing Rick Warren is a conservative evangelical who believes the gospel. But he is a compromiser because he wants to be popular with the world. And I'm saying that he's like Peter in the book of Galatians, who when he was with no none of the Jews from Jerusalem, he, he went and ate with the Gentiles. But then when the Jews from Jerusalem came, he, he wouldn't do it. And Paul rebuked Peter for not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So I am saying Rick Warren privately is one of us. Publicly, he's not. Why does all this New Age stuff come in his book? Because he wants to be loved by the New Agers. Why is this pop psychology in his book? Because he wants to be loved by America. Why does he write Ladies Home Journal and say, well, love yourself, forgive yourself, accept yourself, and then you go privately and he says, no, that won't get you anywhere. You need to repent. Because he wants to be popular with the Ladies Home Journal. So what I'm having a disagreement with Rick Warren is the nature of the gospel as it's proclaimed not just privately believed, in the nature of the church and its message. And that's what it's all about. And so I am not saying Rick Warren's not a Christian. I believe he's one of us, but I think he's like Peter, and, and somebody needs to stand up and tell him. Paul stood up and told Peter and rebuked him to his face. Uh, why don't I? We are. We are. So we're doing I can't. I don't have access to him. I'm a little podunk center guy, but I think I will soon. Brad. <laughs> well, you read Dave Hunt's book, I don't know what it is, he cites, I don't know, scores of evangelical leaders like Billy Graham, I mean, many of them on TVN, he said they're all trying to cozy up to the world and, and they're sending a misleading message. Right. Exactly. That's, that, it, it, it's exactly, it's an epidemic. And you know what, Brad, we're all tempted, I'm tempted to do that. I'm so tempted. If, if, I, if I'm put up in front of a bunch of unsaved people and it's, I want to tell them something they want to hear. I want to make it look like our message is attractive to them. I think we're all, we're all like that. I mean, who wants to be hated? But I'm getting a boldness from, from you and from Ray Comfort and from John MacArthur and some other people that are saying, no, just tell them the truth. Yes, thank you for being patient. Statement and question um, that I noticed in my own life started back at the beginning of this year was falling for the error, the, the Catholic Protestant era of confusion versus invitation. So that reaching out to others seems to fall for the error that people can grow to love Christ because we're just going to be infused with loving Him rather than this immediate imputation of salvation. <laughs> Very eloquently said. <laughs> You're absolutely right. This goes right back to the Reformation, infusion versus imputation. If you want to hear a fantastic CD, and I don't get any royalties. In fact, he sent them all free. I don't know. MacArthur, Jesse and I listened to MacArthur's latest CD on Catholicism that he did after the Pope died. Wow! Wow! 
we were going down to Rochester. I was just like, wow, oh, MacArthur. <laughs> I have never heard anybody so forthright about selling what's wrong with Rome. And they asked the question, is the Pope in heaven? He says, well, the answer is, is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> and, then, and, then he, and then he went and cited what the Catholic doctrine is and says the Pope can't claim to be, they can't claim he's in heaven. If you, I'll tell you what, that is the thing I've ever heard anybody as a one-hour expose of what, what the issues of the Reformation. And you're absolutely right. Where do we get this confusion? That, that's the Council of Trent. That's what they believe. We believe in imputation. That God declares the sinner righteous upon faith. We believe, not works. And so what we want to do is get them into the church and so Christianize them. Maybe sort of by osmosis, it sort of ooze into them. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it's like I said, it was like trying to be in 4-H one like I was when I was a kid. And you get your pig to go to the state fair, and you, and you put Johnson baby oil on the pig, and you put a pink ribbon around his neck. And, you, and, and when you get done with it, the pig goes back in the slop hole. Because it's... It has no, it hasn't changed its pig nature. And so you can take a person and come in and say, okay, they are, you'll put a nice suit of clothes on them and a smiley, happy Christian face and give them a Bible to carry around. You know, maybe you can even wear a tie. Huh? And, and, and you get them all spiffed up and say, there, now we have a Christian. Well, I'll tell you what, as soon as they go out the door, you know where they're going? Slop hole. You gotta be converted. But we've gone over. I'm sorry, Larry. We've, okay. The kids are wrestling out here. Okay, here's a quick one. Uh, you know, you talk about Penny and all these conversion methods and stuff. I don't know if he was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, but. No, he was a hundred years later. That, and that, that is a profound insight. The first great awakening with Whitfield and Finney was based on preaching for, con- Edwards. Whitfield and Edwards was based on preaching for conversions under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you can read first person's accounts of how they did it. The, the so-called third great awakening, if you, if you believe it even was one, under Finney was based on har- harnessing American ingenuity and, and the, sort of the modern way of, of, of processing people in, in a, you know, run them through the grinder and out come the Christians. <laughs>